want to share my own personal story about how I became a Christian about 30 years ago. It was a long time. I certainly have not been perfect the past 30 years, and faith for me was difficult at times, but it came in three stages. The first stage was when I was in my early teen years, and I went from believing that there was nothing out there to believing there was something. I had a spiritual experience. Maybe there is a God. The second stage for me was becoming part of a church, joining a church. And in this church community, my faith was nourished. It was fed on free-range uh, free uh, free beef. What, how do they say it? You know, uh, free-range uh, on the good stuff. It was nourished. But not the best. Church was not a perfect place for me. And in the end, I had to meet Christ for myself. That was the third stage what I will call an existential encounter with the man Jesus. All of us need to move through these steps to meet Jesus ourselves, and that's the pathway that I want to take us through today. If you look in your notes in your bulletin, you'll see three pathways to Jesus. They begin first from no God, maybe there is a God, to God. First step. The second pathway is, okay, maybe there is a God, then we join a church. And then the third pathway is from church to Christ. And those are the three stages of faith that I'd like to talk about today. And I'm going to uh, unpack the, the teaching of Paul in Acts chapter 17, verses 22 to 34. This is his famous sermon on Mars Hill. All I'm going to do is follow the logic of his thought and expound this person, Jesus, to you as Paul teaches. Before I go any further, let me just give credit where it's due. I learned this in school that it's important not to plagiarize, to plagiarize and copy someone else's ideas. Now, while this sermon is completely mine, I wrote, I wrote this sermon, uh, my ideas are very influenced by Tim Keller. If you can put that image on the screen, this book by the Reverend Tim Keller his book is called Reason for God. And here's what I want to do. I want to strike a bargain with anybody in this room. Anybody in this room, if you are interested in reading this New York Times bestseller, which is a rational appeal to faith in Jesus, I will buy you this book personally out of my own bank account, not church expenses. I'll buy you this book, provided that you buy me coffee in return and read it and discuss it with me. I'll buy you the book personally, provided that you buy me coffee and tell me what this book is telling you, what you're learning through this book. That's the deal. And the way you can communicate with me is in your bulletin, you'll see a yellow sheet, a communication card. Everybody see that yellow? If you could just hold it up. Wave. People, wave some yellow sheets up in the air for me so we know. Please? Yellow sheets. We don't have it. Okay, then our beloved Anthony will pass out yellow. Let's make sure everybody gets a yellow communication card today. And on this yellow sheet that's about to uh, reach your hands, just say, I want the book. I want the book, and I will get it in your hands in, uh, before long. I'll get that book, but the deal is you buy me coffee. That's the deal. And so, um, yes, I give credit. Uh, this is my sermon, but some of the line of thought, some of the, 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 the logic comes from uh, this very book that 
you're about to read, or you're about to buy, or I'm about to buy for you. So uh, let's start with Paul in Acts chapter 17, verse 22, as we take this first step from no God, there's nothing out there, to maybe there is a God. First pathway. We begin with Acts chapter 17, verses 22. If I can direct your attention to your Bible, if you have one, or you can look it up on your, on your phone. Hear the word of the Lord. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus. This is also known as Mars Hill. And he said, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, Paul is standing in this place called the Areopagus. Uh, Pagus is hill, Ari, Ares. This is the hill of Ares. Ares, any children here know? Ares was the god, the Greek god of war. So that's why it's also called Mars Hill. This is a place where the philosophers uh, of ancient Greece gathered, they debated, and the, the strongest philosophies won. And in this context, Paul presents his philosophy of Jesus. Does it win? Is it a strong philosophy? Well, Paul starts out by saying there is a God. There's a God that you all worship. You just don't know it yet. And that's the first line of reasoning I want to take with anybody here. Even if you are an atheist and you say, the only reason I'm at church today is because my wife dragged me. I don't believe in God. I certainly don't care about organized religion. But here you are, pastor, telling me that I'm worshiping something. Yes. Even if you are an atheist, I want to submit that you are worshiping something. We're all worshiping something. Now you say, how? How am I worshiping something today? I don't believe in God. I don't have religion. This is how I think it works. It goes back three generations to our grandparents. The grandparents' generation had a different way of seeing the world from their parents and their grandparents. Our grandparents' generation saw the rise of something called science. And with the rise of science, our grandparents' generation said, God, we don't need God. We have science. It answers the questions, and therefore all this hocus-pocus, mumbo-jumbo, religious, we don't need it. Just give us the facts. Give us evidence and proof. God, we don't need him. We have science. That's three generations. That's grandpappy's generation. And then we have... After them, our parents' generation. Our parents' generation lived through Vietnam. They saw the old black and white photographs, maybe even the cover of Time Life magazine. And they agree. They have the same premise as our grandparents' generation. They will say, um, yes, we don't need God. We have science. But there is such a thing as evil in the world because we've seen children with their villages napalmed and horrific things happening. I believe without a doubt there's something in the world and it's, it's just this great evil force. 
We human beings seem to have this destructive anti-force. Our generation has taken that to the last step. We have the same fundamental premise as grandparents. God, we don't believe in God because we have science. But we agree with our parents' generation. There's evil in the world. And we'll take it to the next step and we'll say what Sam Gamgee said to Frodo all those years ago on the top of the mountain in the middle of nowhere in Lord of the Rings. He says, there is some good in the world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. He's a millennial, Sam Gamgee is. He symbolizes the perfect young person today. I don't believe in God, but there's evil, and I'm going to do some good in the world. I'm going to make clean water for poor children in some back country. I'm going to fight for fairness and equity and justice because there's good in the world and I'm going to believe in good. I just don't believe in God. This is one of those things where we say in grade school, you got the right answer. Your answer is correct, so I'll give you the credit, but I can't give you 100% of the credit, only 50%. Why? I got it right. Because you didn't show your work. How did you get to that conclusion that there's good and evil in the world, but you don't believe in God? Show me your work. And you say, okay, let's see, uh, lowest common denominator, flip it to the top and do this, and then you get the wrong answer. And you can't show the work. And we're struggling today. Millennials struggle to say, this is why there's good and evil. We struggle. In fact, I have a clip that illustrates this, a video clip that shows better than me explaining. I want you to watch the millennial try to explain to his grandpa just how there is good and evil in the world. Go ahead and play that clip. We're gonna kill that guy. Of course, I'm a Terminator. Listen to me very carefully, okay? You're not a Terminator anymore, right? You got that? Why? You just can't go around killing people. Why? What do you mean, why? Because you can't. Why? Because you just can't, okay? Trust me on this. Why? I'm going to go get my mom. Why? I've shown that clip at least once before at church. I wanted to show it today again for the sake of anybody here who knows that feeling of trying to explain your work. How do I believe what I believe today? I'm not sure, but you just can't do harm. You just can't hurt people. I don't know. We just have to believe in the good. We just have to do what's good, but why? Why? we don't believe in God, and yet we're still proclaiming God's laws and ethics, that, I believe, is still worshiping God. The case that I'm making today is even if you don't believe in a God, even if you don't believe that there's anything or any reason why we do good and evil, but you still say we just can't kill people, we just have to do what's good, we're essentially still worshiping God. And in that sense, we are very much like the Athenians, like the ancient Greeks. We're just like them. We think, oh, they were ancient, but we're the same. Men and women of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. 
Why? We just have no proof. But we're very religious. We're very spiritual. Especially young people today, millennials. And we live in this age where perhaps if I can convince you that you are worshiping something, every time you proclaim God's ethics, there's good, there's evil, we're moving from this place, this first pathway, okay, there is no God, why don't we just say maybe there is a God because we believe in good and evil. So why don't we just say and change that fundamental premise because hopefully I've convinced you we are worshiping something. From no God, maybe there is a God. Maybe there is a God. That takes us to our second, second place. The second place now where I want to journey you as your faith or you're having an encounter is from God. Maybe there is a God, second step, to the church. I'm pulling a fast one on you. We're going to get you to be a member of this church even before you believe in Jesus. Hold the phone. Hang with me here. Second heading from God to church. Let's look at Acts chapter 17 and pick up in verse 24 with Paul's thought. Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with hands. Now, the eminent philosophers on that hill, they say, we agree with you. The problem with Greek society back then was paganism and pantheism. Who knows what pantheism is? It's the worship of many gods. It's the worship of many gods. But the preeminent philosopher says that's not clean, that's messy. Worship of one god, and there's a god in heaven. We don't know who he is, but he's up there. He's the unknown god. And so Paul, he says, yes, there is this God in verse 25. He's not served by human hands. He doesn't need anything from us since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. But in verse 26, Paul says, this God in heaven made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. So he makes a connection between God and Adam. God and man. There was a conversation that Albert Einstein, track with me, Albert Einstein had with Rabbi Herbert Goldstein in 1929. Do you think Albert Einstein believed in God? He actually did. Einstein said, I believe in Spinoza's God. This is the God who reveals himself in the lawful harmony of the world. I don't believe in a God who concerns himself with the fate and the doings of mankind. In other words, what Einstein was saying and what many people say today is, there's a God. He created the universe, but he, had, he doesn't care if I prayed. He's not interested in humankind. He just is the one that made the clock. He's the clockmaker. He made the universe, but he's not involved. What Paul does here is he builds a bridge from heaven to earth saying there is a God and he is involved in people today. It's a thin link, but he starts with this connection. Um, how many of you have ever seen the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco? Huge, massive red bridge spanning this big body of water. I heard it. I don't know if it's true. But do you know how they started building that bridge? With a kite and a string. They flew the kite, again, I don't know if this is true, you can fact check it, 
But the legend has it, they flew a kite with a string, it went all the way to the other side, and then with that string, they were able to gradually bring across more strings, and eventually became cable, and then in the end, you have this bridge. But it started with a thin string. What Paul is doing here is he's building a thin cable, a string between heaven and earth, which is a first step connection. You might say today, there is a God, but I just don't think he's involved. What Paul and what I want to convince you of is whenever you find yourself waking up in the middle of the night, listening to the silence, there is a God who's whispering your name. Whenever you swerved out of the way and you did not get in that car accident and you survived and you said, there's no God out there, thin cable, a thread connecting down to you and saying, I'm here, I'm here. Whenever you've gone through some crisis and you say, God, just get me through this. I don't know if you're there. I don't know if you're there. But through the silence, through the smallest things, God is whispering to you and saying, I'm here, I'm here. And I'm involved. I'm involved. So let's continue. He made from one man, God made one man every nation of mankind, Jews, Christians, Muslims, atheists, all peoples today. And he determines their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. The philosophers are like, okay, now he's saying that God is very involved. So he's bringing more cables across. He's starting to build a bridge. God is involved. And he does this, why? So that he can connect to us Yes, but more so, look at verse 27. So that we would seek God. We would connect back to God. How many close encounters does it take for you to realize that God has been screaming, I'm here, I love you, I love you, I love you. Is there a God? I don't know if God exists. But he builds that bridge from heaven to earth to say, one day you're going to come. You're going to come to, you're going to come to your senses and realize I'm here. And you're going to seek for me. Even, even grope, groping around like a blind person in the darkness, maybe you'll find that cable and climb it up. Although he is not far from each of us. For in God we live and move and we have our being, we exist. As even some of your own poets have said, we also are his children. We are the children of God. How many of you here are children of somebody? At one point or another, but you are children of God. You hear that? You are a child of God, and he whispers your name. He whispers, he's building a thread, a connection with you, so that one day you will say, Papa, Papa. I, I walked into church this morning, and someone, one of, one of the old timers, uh, from Las Buenas Nuevas, he's 83 years old. My father's 80 years old. And, and um, he, was, he was trying to converse with me, and I was trying to understand, and finally I heard his message, you know, and I said, gracias, papi. All right, thank you. God yearns for the day when we can answer back and say, papi, papa, padre, father. But here's the thing. Some of us, maybe even many of us, will refuse to call anybody father. We will refuse to call anybody poppy. 
we will refuse to submit to any religion that dominates us, that controls us, any patriarchy. My father, no way I'm not going to have it. A child of God, not interested in being a child of God. I'm nobody's child. I'm my own independent human being. This is what my father was like, you might say. There's a story. There was a story of a, of a lawyer. He was good. He was fair. He was a good lawyer. He had a son. One day that little boy grew up, and he was the total opposite. This boy, he grew up and he ended up in criminal court on trial. And the baffled judge is looking at the boy and he's saying, I knew your dad. He was a good man. He was a lawyer, a good lawyer. How did you turn out like this? And the, 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 the man on trial, a young man, just looked away. So the judge, he decided to probe a little bit and he said, tell me about, tell me about dad. Tell me what, dad, what it was like living with dad. I don't know how you turned out like this. And the criminal he looked and he said, you want me to tell you about my father? I'll tell you about my dad. When I got in a fight, he didn't stand up for me. When I went to him for advice, he turned me away and judged me. And when I looked to my dad for answers, he shooed me away and said he was too busy at work. You want to know who my dad was? You remember him as a good lawyer. I remember him as neither just, neither truthful, and neither fair. Your religion, your law, all of your stuff, keep it. I don't want it. Many people in society today want nothing to do with the church because we refuse to be anybody's little boy or little girl. We refuse. We will not submit. I will not be anybody's child. And so instead what we do is we would rather blind in the darkness grope around and find God myself a God of my own understanding. Maybe I'll find God somewhere on the other side of the world, maybe in the dark place. Maybe I'll find a God of my own understanding. I know, honestly, the truth is many people. I know many people like this. They find a God, their own God, but they don't want anything to do with church. The problem with that, my friends, the problem with that is it's like, it's like trying to understand God apart from a community. How many of you have found the right way home on your own? We need help. We need others on the pathway of finding God. The church is not a place where we perfectly understand God. The church is not a place where we perfectly have all of our stuff together, our marriage stuff worked out, all of our sin habits broken overnight, all of the things perfect, and then therefore you're going to come and you're going to get perfect. The church is a place where we are all groping and seeking after God together. A community of seekers is a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. The point that I'm trying to make is Part of believing in God, part of believing, an important part of believing is belonging. An important part of believing is belonging to something. Finding a community like Woven because you can't build your faith by yourself. 
We need this church. Not in this kind of enmeshed, codependent way. No, no, no. We need a community of other seekers. We need a church like Woven because we are all on this path of seeking. I'll just say this last thing. Are churches perfect? No. Church is very, you know, even for me, I work, I'm still working through my issues, harms and wounds I've received at the hands of churches and even pastors. I know that even as a pastor, I'm not perfect. How many times I've made mistakes? I'm a wounded pastor who was wounded by pastors. The reality is the church is not perfect, but it is a place of goodness. You want to talk about there's good in the world, Frodo? It's worth fighting for. The place of good is the church. I'll tell you a quick story about this. There's a beautiful story I just heard this week. Ancient, ancient times, even before history, there were two brothers. These two brothers, they both worked a mill grinding out grain. Every day at the end of the day, they would take their portion of grain and go home to their own respective homes with their portion of grain. The older brother was single, alone. He was old. And he knew that his younger brother had a large family, many children, many mouths to feed. So every night at 2 a.m., he would secretly, the older brother would get up and he would take some of his grain and sneak over to his brother's silo and give him an extra portion because his younger brother had more mouths to feed, a large family. So he would give him some of his portion, give him more grain. But the funny thing is, the younger brother every night was thinking about his older brother. He's alone. He's old. Nobody to take care of him. I'm going to give him some of my grain. So every night... They crossed paths, or they, they did it at different times, and the younger brother would take grain, his portion, and he'd give an extra portion to his older brother. And this went on for a long time, until one night, at 2.14 a.m. in the morning, they ran into each other and saw what they were doing. And they looked at each other, and they wept. And they embraced as they realized they were doing and then they dropped all their grain but they wept and they embraced and God witnessed that and when God saw that moment this is an old rabbinical uh, old rabbinical story when God saw this God said this is a holy place this is a beautiful place of love and here is where I'm going to build my temple I'm going to build my temple here because this was a place of selfless love. I have a younger brother. Believe me, I know what it's like. Give him my share, why? But this place of love, allegedly, according to legend, is where God built his temple. Is the church perfect? Far from it. But it's a place where we practice stuff like this. It's a place where we learn selflessness, reconciliation, where two brothers learn how to make it right. From no God to God, and then from God, maybe there is a God to church. We need a church because that 
is the petri dish. It's the ecosystem to strengthen and nourish this faith. But this takes us to the third and last heading. Where is Jesus in all of this? And I want to finish and bring us now from church to Christ. For me and my own journey and my Christian faith, the last thing, the last stage in my journey, it happened when I was 18 years old where I finally realized that I need to turn over my life not to the church, not to religion or Christianity, but to Jesus. And it's to the man Jesus that I, have to, that I wanted to devote my life and follow him. All the other stuff about religion and church and God, I didn't fully grasp. But Jesus was easy to get. Because there's four books about him in the Bible. And I read, and I began to see the man Jesus. I want to close us off with these last passages in verse 29 to 34 of Acts 17. Paul says, being then the children of God, we ought not think that the divine nature, Spinoza's God, universal God, we shouldn't think that God is like gold or silver or stone, like all these idols that we see in Greek society. And the philosophers are like, yes, we agree. And Paul continues, he says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of that ignorance, God's been patient with us in our ignorance, he now says to men and women and all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, a person, a man, a human being. And this is where, this is where the, 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 all the, the philosophers and so their eyes glaze over and they fall asleep. Or, or they say, oh, brother. That's exactly three responses. Look in verse 32. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead and this man Jesus, some began to sneer. That's the first thing. Some began to sneer. When I was a young, young teenager in youth group, I remember we had a youth pastor he was not as cool as Bo, and he certainly didn't have as many muscles and as many sunglasses. Instead, he came to church every Sunday with a clerical collar like this, and he had a very thick accent, and he looked like he hated children. And I think he did. And so you know what I did? I got up in the middle of the sermon, and I sneered. I laughed. I would go get potato chips, come back to the service, sit down, <laughs> while he was trying to preach the gospel, which he looked like he really did. He'd rather, do, like, he'd rather do like heavy lifting or something. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, I'm in that first category. I sneered. Religion, ridiculous. Especially the way he's presenting it. But then there's a second group. Second group says, we shall hear you again concerning this. We'll come back. Or we'll invite you back. But we want to hear more. So I'll buy that book, Reason for God by Tim Keller. And I want to hear more. I'll buy you coffee. Second group. And then there's a third group. Third group in verse 34. Some joined and believed. Some joined and believed, including Dionysius and Damaris. The only reason those two names are specifically mentioned like that is because Dionysius and Damaris were actual people. They would be known in the early, you know, when the Christians read this, they were like, that's where Dionysius came from. That's where Damaris got her start. That's where they, that's where we met, that's where they met, you know, Paul. That's where, that's the beginning. So Dionysius, Damaris, they're mentioned specifically because they became believers. Not only did they believe, they joined. 
I don't know what happened to me at the age of 13. I went to, to, oh, wow, I'm going to join this. And I'm going to sit in the front row, and I'm going to, you know. I, something happened. I went from the first to the third right away. But even then, even then, meeting Christ, that's something that we all have to do. That's a journey going from sneering to joining and believing. You might say today, Pastor, I can't make that connection. I'm still going... I still think this is rather silly. You're kind of walking around there, flailing your arms. Pastor, you're, you're, you're not convincing me. How am I going to believe in Jesus? How am I going to go from no God to God? Maybe you've convinced me there. Okay, I'm worshiping something in ignorance every time I say, you can't just go around killing people. Okay, fine, I believe that. Okay, maybe the church thing, I get that. But how am I going to get to Jesus? Third and last question. How am I going to make this connection? How in the world am I going to make the leap from unbelief to following Jesus. How? I'm going to tell you the answer. The answer is you don't make the leap. He's already made that leap. When God became man and embodied himself in a man, Jesus Christ, when God became man, there is no longer a leap for us to believe in Christ as much as God made that big cross across, the, that, that big leap across the bridge, God becoming man is the leap. As a young person, I remember asking my dad, you know, it was one of those nights where you're, you're thinking too hard and you're wondering what happens. Are there aliens out in the universe? Is there life after death? And I'm turning on all the lights and I'm rocking back and forth and my dad comes down and he says, what's wrong? And I said, Dad, I don't know if there's life. Is there, is there God? Do we reincarnate? What happens? And my, my, my dad, he said, I don't, how did you come for me? And my dad's a blue-collar man. You know, he's a businessman. He says, you think too hard. So my dad, he said, how am I going to answer this? You know, giving birth to, you know, giving birth to this, this strange child. So my dad, he, he came up with an answer which is ingenious. It's the best theology that I've ever heard in my life. My dad said in his Korean accent, Wayne, God hard. Figuring God out, hard. Jesus, easy. You don't have to worry and figure out God. But look at the man Jesus in the, in the Gospels, in the Bible. It's easy. Because at the end of the day, I'm not asking you to place your trust in some great metaphysical idea. I'm asking you to look at Jesus every day. Look at Jesus. Read him in his word. Read about him in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Follow, find out, and you will see. This is what I'm trying to say. You will see all of the good, the thing that sets your heart on fire, everything that you know to be true, right, beautiful, harmonious, everything that you believe, every millennial can say, I see God in Jesus Christ. Every millennial today that wants to advocate for clean water or on behalf of the poor, every millennial that believes that there is evil but that there is good and good must overcome evil, every millennial proclaims Jesus Christ but just hasn't seen Jesus yet. You haven't seen Jesus. Have you read the stories? 
Have you heard about the things that he did when there was a woman caught in adultery? And everybody wanted, did you hear what he did? Did you hear about the things that he did when there were persons that were blind, people that were crying out when everybody was against the poor? Did you hear about what he did? Man, it was awesome. It was good. You know, I teach Sunday school every morning, as Paul shared, 9 a.m. How many times in the last six months have we cried reading the Gospels? Not just me, the three of us. We cried. We cried. Because there's something so compelling about this man, God, that I hope that you are convinced today. And if I can't convince you, then let the Spirit convince you as we, as we just close out with worship. If my words can't convince you, let the Holy Spirit, in a powerful way, speak to you. And in the midst of the ruckus, I know my guitar was off. <laughs> Maybe you can hear the voice, the whisper, the thin thread of God saying, See? I told you, I'm here, and you can see me more clearly through my son, Jesus Christ. Friends, in conclusion, on Easter Sunday, we proclaim that this man, Jesus, died and rose again. That's what we believe. Four witnesses in the Bible testify. We could have just had one, but one book in the Bible, but there were four Different voices saying that this man Jesus rose from the dead. And he did this so that we could see God more clearly. And so that we, who were unable to make that leap, he made that leap for us by becoming man, by becoming human. I'm not saying place your trust in God. I'm saying look at Jesus. Look at Jesus.